I just want to take a moment and, and thank the, uh, the music, um, the, 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 <laughs> the music, thank the music, thank the, uh, uh, the people that play, I'm so sorry, what is wrong with my brain? What are they called? Musicians, yes. Uh, <laughs> thank the musicians and the effort that they put into that um, to lead us into worship, uh, to, to direct our focus and attention to pour out the praise of our hearts to the Lord. Um, that is a, a skill and, uh, and an effort that is so valuable. And I uh, just thank you so much for the, for the effort that you put into that. And, um, and so if you, if you ever think about that, folks, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And to really take a moment to encourage them with, with their skill and their effort. And as we all come here to, to church we each bring a different skill set, a different set of gifts from the Lord to build up and edify the body. And, um, and that's one very tangible public uh, way that that is done. So thank you. Seriously, thank you so much. Um, brings me to tears to, to sing the great name of Jesus, you know. And that's what it's about, you know, that our hearts would be fully devoted, fully devoted to him in worship and in praise. Um, and so it's a great blessing to be with you this uh, afternoon, this morning actually. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to need your prayers. I've been battling a, a cold. You can hear it in my voice a little bit. I need your prayers this morning because your, God's word is valuable and it's powerful and you need it and so do I. And I'm, it so happens I'm the weak vessel chosen this morning to deliver it to you. And uh, so I want to pray here in a moment, and I always do this when, we, when I preach, but I want to ask you that as I pray, it's not a, just a transition moment into the next thing. It truly is communicating with the Lord and asking Him, the one who loves us and cares for us, asking Him to help us engage with His Word, to, to understand it and to believe it, to live it out. And, um, and so as I pray, would you pray with me, okay, and, and you go to war with me in prayer over what we're going to be talking about today. So let's pray, and let's devote this time to the Lord. Father, we want to acknowledge that you are mighty and powerful, and that you are present here with us this morning. Lord Jesus, you watch over your churches. You walk among them. You know the ins and outs of what happens here. You know all of the temptations that we're going through. You know all the trials and the struggles. You know the conflicts. And so, Father, Lord, help us this morning to listen to you because you are you know all things, and you are all wise, and you have given us what we need to follow you. So I pray that our hearts would be attentive, submissive, and desperate for your word, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, poor in spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that, that we would not leave this time uh, Unchanged, that we, would, that we would be impacted by what your word says and that it would influence the way that we view the world that you have made, the way that we 
the way that we interact with that world, the way that we, the way that we deal with the things that we see and the experience, that it would be the lens through which we make our decisions and, and think about things. So help us this morning, Lord. Strengthen us for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a Tuesday morning. Uh, it was my senior year of high school. And I was awakened by my brother, who's two years younger than me, saying, Jess, get up. You've got to see this. And I slowly stumbled out of bed and wasn't sure what to make of the alarming sound in his voice. And so I rubbed the sleep from my eyes and made my way to the living room of our triple-wide trailer in uh, Santa Clarita, California. My, ta- my family had gathered around the TV. So I kind of positioned myself to look at what was going on on the screen, and I asked, What's hap- what happened? All I could see was fire and smoke. Was, the camera was close up. I, I asked, did a volcano erupt? And they said, I, I don't know. And then the camera zoomed out, and you could see that it was a, a skyscraper on fire. Like, what on earth is going on? Someone said, I think it was hit by a plane. I'm like, really? How do, you, how do you accidentally run into a skyscraper? Just a few moments later, I and the rest of America exclaimed, whoa, did you just see that? Another huge jetliner just hit the other tower on live television. At that moment, it hit all of us. This was on purpose. Somebody did this on purpose. And at that moment, America changed, September 11th, 2001. We were completely taken off guard by this. No one expected this. This was 2001. This is the height of American power. This was the most comfortable time in history. You know, the Soviet Union had fallen 10 years prior. We weren't engaged in any major wars. We didn't have any real threats that we were aware of. There was a few things here and there overseas, but nothing that really, you know, made us feel like we were at war, anything that should make us feel uncomfortable. This was a time of relative calm and great prosperity. But what most Americans didn't realize is that we had a determined enemy that hated us. They hated our values, our culture. They despised our power. And they especially despised our presence in the Middle East, in their holy land. And so to throw us, to cast us out, They schemed every single day to bring a devastating attack on our homeland. 
you know, the intelligence community was aware of this, but this was not really on our radar as a culture. And we were shaken to our core. America had changed. We didn't, we didn't even know that we had an enemy. But now we knew that there was an enemy capable of massive destruction and that they had moved freely among us. These, these terrorists had plotted for years, had lived in suburbs and took flying lessons. They moved freely among us. See, we were not prepared to face this enemy when they struck. And when they did, it caused massive confusion. It led the U.S. into making huge mistakes in response, mistakes that we're still feeling the, the effects of today. We weren't ready, but we should have been. We should have been ready because these, their plots were actually not that secret. There were people in the intelligence committee that knew about all this stuff. They had made it plain in the, all of their literature that this is their intention. And yet because of uh, overconfidence and turf wars amongst our law enforcement, we didn't, we didn't get to them. We didn't stop them when we could have. Well, just as America had and still has an enemy actively scheming against us every day, so you and I have an even greater enemy, one who moves more freely, one who is more powerful, and the stakes are even higher. We have an, an enemy that is actively scheming against us. And with that in mind, I would... With that in mind, I would like to open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians, chapter 6. Consider this reality that is being communicated by the Apostle Paul to the, book, to the church at Ephesus. He says this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That is the word of God. Have you considered this reality? Have you considered this reality that you are at war? Think about this. How would it change your life if, you, if your hometown, wherever you live, wherever you're scattered here in, in northeast Georgia, if your town was at war, how would it affect your decisions? How would it affect your priorities? What, what would you give yourself to? What would you, what would you worry about? if you realize that you are at war. This passage shows us, it, it lifts the veil on this invisible battle going on. You know, in verse 10, he talks about how we're to be strong in the Lord, and this, this battle is going to require strength, incredible strength. It's going to require God's strength to do this. And what is it that we're doing? We're putting on the armor of God so that we're able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So we have a devil, we have an enemy who is actively scheming against us. And this enemy is not a man. As in verse 12 it says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers it's against the devil and against his, his spiritual forces of wickedness, his demons. This is who we wrestle and struggle against. And therefore, this passage is calling us to arms, to take up the full armor of God. And I want you to notice something at the end of verse 13. Okay, so we're to take up the full armor so that we'll be able to resist him on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So there's a couple of things to note. You will be able to resist this devil. You'll be able to resist these forces, but only if you take up the full armor of God and if you do everything to stand firm. See, this is going to require diligence. It requires effort. There's an intensity to this, right? You see, the Christian life is not one of, um, of ease and relaxation. That is not what we've been called to. It's not just a nice way of life. It's, just not, it's not just a little community of friends. The Christian life is is one that involves sweat and tears and, and diligence, desperate effort. 
in order to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is not going to be easy. It's not an easy fight. Um, you know, sometimes we, we want, and well, I mean, it's just natural to want things to be easy. That's what we desire, right? We want easy relationships. We want things to go easily at our work. We want our bosses to like us, and we want that to come easily. We want money to come easily. We want marriage and family to come easily. We want this to be easy. But Scripture clearly shows that this is not an easy fight because the devil is constantly scheming against us to cause us to fall. And so you must, at the end of the passage, it says, stay alert. This is a call to prepare for war. And you must make diligent preparation. And there's three reasons to prepare. Okay, we'll just, we just talked about them. You have a powerful enemy scheming against you. Actively scheming, this very moment. That enemy will attack at different times. His attacks are various, varying levels of intensity. They're creative. But they're um, relentless. So you have an enemy. That enemy will attack. And number three, you have been commanded to stand firm. That's why we must prepare for war. See, there's, retreat is not an option. Uh, avoid, you will not avoid this battle. You cannot, you cannot run away from it. And you have been commanded by God to stand your ground against him. And so you must prepare for war. So how do we do that? How do we prepare for this? The first the first way to prepare is that you need to know your enemy. You have to know your enemy. Okay, and I want to cover six characteristics of our enemy so that we can understand him, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a lot at you today. This is a, a six-part series that I'm trying to give you as much as I can because we're going to cover part of it today, and then in two weeks we'll finish it, Okay. But today, I want to cover our enemy. I want you to know, I want you to understand who this enemy is. There's a lot of misunderstandings about him. I want you to know who he is. Okay, so we fight against the schemes of the devil. The first characteristics about him is that he is real. First characteristic is he is real. We need to point this out because people want to believe that Satan is just a metaphor that he is some ancient myth, but nothing could be further from the truth. His existence is found in at least eight Old Testament books and in 18 New Testament books. He's mentioned 74 times in the New Testament. Every single New Testament writer mentions him at least once, every single one of them. 
Every writer was aware that this devil was a real person. And the second characteristic about him is that he is a person. He's not a force. He's not some evil. Evil is not some force. It's personal. He's a person. He, he, is, he is in one place. He has a personality. He has an intellect, emotions, and he has a will. He is shown to tempt and to scheme. He's, he shows pride and anger. He tries to conform the world after his will. He goes by many names and designations, about 30 of them. He's called Satan in the Old Testament, which is adversary or one who opposes. He's called the devil, which means slanderer. Just a side note on that. When you slander somebody, you're, you're like a little devil. That, that you, when you slander somebody, that is, you, are not any, you could not be any more like Satan than to be a slanderer. That is to, that is to hype up things about people in order to tear them down, to spread things about them in order to destroy them. That is satanic. The devil is a slanderer. He's called the serpent of old. He's called Abaddon. In the Greek, the Greek word for that is Apollyon, which carries the idea that he is a destroyer. He's called the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, the angel of the bottomless pit, Beelzebul, which means Lord Prince of the demons, Belial, which means vile, wicked, and worthless. In Revelation, he is called the great dragon, the enemy, evil one, father of lies, God of this world, liar, and the father of lies, Lucifer, which means light bearer or day star. He is called a murderer, the prince of the power of the air. He's called a roaring lion, ruler of this world, tempter. He's a person with emotion, intellect, will, and he has many names, right? He is also a spirit. He is an, he is an angel, which means he's a created being. He was created during the first week of creation along with all angels. He's been around since that time. That was the only time angels were created during the first week of creation. And therefore, he is ancient. He's been doing this a long time. He's been through many battles. He's been studying mankind for a while. He knows how people work. Fifth characteristic is that he is evil. He desires your destruction. He is jealous of God. He hates God. He hates mankind. He desires to put enmity between man and God. He's a liar and a murderer. He is, he is evil. And the last characteristic is he is powerful. Now, there's all kinds of passages I could give you. We just don't have time. I'll give you a couple here in a second. But he is powerful. It is said that the whole world lies under his sway. 
He is the power behind the throne. In Matthew 4, when Satan is tempting Jesus, he offers to give him the kingdoms of the world. He had, he had been given authority to kind of run the kingdoms of the world. And he offered it to Jesus if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. He runs things. In Isaiah 14, he's shown to be the power behind the king of Babylon. In Ezekiel 28, he's the power behind the king of Tyre. Two very powerful nations in those days. He was once the anointed guardian cherub, as Ezekiel 28, 13, and 15 say. That means he was the highest angel. He was the most beautiful of the angels. MacArthur put it this way. He was the worship leader of heaven. That was his role. Beautiful, glorious, powerful, and he was up there, right? Until he fell. He seems to have some control over weather sometimes. You see it in the book of Job. He sometimes has control over disease somehow. Um, you see this in, in different uh, passages. Uh, in Job where he, the boils, you know, the, uh, Job is given a painful disease by Satan Somehow he has some kind of control over that. He has control over evil people. You see that in Job as well where uh, he used the Nabataeans to come out of the desert to, to steal Job's stuff and to kill his servants. Somehow he influenced them to do that. How does that happen? I don't know. But he clearly has at times been given some ability to do that. Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, he called it a messenger from Satan to torment him. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 says that Satan hindered Paul from visiting the Thessalonians when he had intended to come. Revelation 2.10 says that Satan was about to cast some of you into prison. In Hebrews, it says that the devil is said to have the power of death and the fear of of death is what he uses to enslave people. So he is powerful, right? He's, he's personal. He's a spirit. He's an ancient being. He's, he is evil and he is strong and he's not alone. As we saw in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He has an army of demonic forces, unclean spirits, Luke 4 calls them, evil spirits. In Luke 8, 1 Corinthians 10, 20 says that, that idols are actually demons. When people worship idols and make sacrifices to idols, they're worshiping and sacrificing to demons. Somehow, demons are behind people's desire to worship created things and, and graven images. Rulers and authorities, cosmic power, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places these are all just different wor words that express the same reality. Powerful, supernatural, demonic forces arrayed against us. They are said to be able to possess unbelievers. Okay? A believer cannot be possessed and controlled by a demon. But we do see that 
at least in certain times in history, they have had the ability to possess unbelievers, to, to throw them down in, in, into a fire. I mean, this is, it's, it is terrifying stuff. They influence false teachers. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 says this, that, that these false teachers disguise themselves just like Satan disguises himself like an angel of light. These false teachers are influenced somehow by Satan and demonic forces. And I'm sure it's mixed with their own cleverness as well. But somehow they have influence in these things. In fact, it's fascinating to see that some of the major religions that were started uh, were started when someone had a vision of something. So, like uh, uh, the uh, uh, Isl- Islam, you know, Muhammad went into a cave and had supposedly had visions. Some angel came to him and revealed things to him, and that's how Islam is started. Could that have been a demon? I, I believe it could have been. And with how powerful that is, I, I wouldn't doubt it. Joseph Smith, supposedly, by himself, in a forest, had a vision of, of Jesus and, and God the Father. And now Mormonism is one of the biggest, most fastest spreading religions in the world. Uh, even faster spreading than that is Pentecostalism, riding on the heels of, riding on the heels of everyone having their own vision of X, Y, or Z. Are those demonic forces? I don't know. But it seems very plausible that that is what could be happening. But we do know that a lot of doctrines, false doctrines, are the doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. So we have to take a note at this point that trying to figure out the actual hierarchy of these spiritual demonic forces is not healthy or necessary. We just know that they exist and that they are working against us. We don't have to go figure out who the demon in charge of Lawrenceville is, right? We don't need, we don't need to know that. We don't, we don't need to know, well, okay, so Satan communicates with, uh, you know, the prince of Lawrenceville to bring, you know, and Harbin, you know, Harbin's, you know, they're one of the lower minions is over, you know. We don't need to know that. And believe it or not, some people try to figure that out. And they claim to have visions that explain all this. If someone tries to tell you that, they're lying and they don't know what they're talking about, okay? Just so you know. <laughs> don't believe them. People claim to have intimate knowledge. If you want to see some examples of this, you can go to Jude and Second Peter, where these guys puffed up in their own imaginations claim to have intimate knowledge of these things and are, speak arrogant things against demonic forces. Okay. So those are the characteristics. I'll give you a couple of key passages to look at on your own. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19, and Job chapter 1 and 2. You can see all of these characteristics coming out in those key passages. All right, but I want to get to a few more things here. So those are his characteristics. What are his goals? What does Satan want? What is his agenda? So this ancient, evil, powerful enemy is scheming against us in order to bring shame and disgrace upon the name of Christ. His goal is to make you dishonor Christ in your actions, to disobey the will of God. He wants your faith to fail and your proclamation of the gospel to be hindered. That is the, that, to put it kind of in a nutshell, that's, those are the things he wants. He wants your faith to fail. 
He wants you to not believe God. He doesn't want you to believe his promises. He doesn't want you to believe his word. He doesn't want you to believe that he is good. He wants you to doubt God so that you will not obey God, so that you will dishonor God. And if he can't make your faith fail, now listen, if you're saved, if your faith is genuine, your faith will not fail. The saints will persevere. But the parable of the soils in, um, I think it's Luke chapter 8, go and read it. There are many who give the appearance of faith for a time. They receive the gospel with joy at first, but in time of testing, they fall away. When the heat of persecution arises, they fall away. There's also those that fall among the thorns, and Jesus says those are the ones who sprout up, but then are choked out by the cares the riches, and the pleasures of life. And they're, they're shown to be unbelievers. A believer is someone who believes and over the course of their life endures in that faith. And they bear fruit in that faith. Satan wants to choke out that faith, choke out that seed, and if he can't make your faith fail, he wants your ability to, to make disciples to be hindered. He wants to keep you from proclaiming the gospel of salvation. He wants you to be fearful of that. He wants you to be distracted from that. <clears throat> he wants your witness to be uh, destroyed, disqualified from preaching it. That's what he wants from Okay, so those are his goals. Now, listen to this. God created mankind in the image of God to have a relationship with him, to represent him in creation. He also created mankind to worship his son, Jesus Christ. See, this is, this is the beautiful thing in the Trinity is that when God says, you need to worship me, he's really saying, I want you to worship Christ. And Christ is wanting the glory to go to God. And the Spirit is wanting the glory to go to them. There is a mutual love in the Trinity. And so that is why it's not selfish for God to say, worship me. Because God is saying, look at the glory of my son, <clears throat> of my son, who also happens to be one with me. And Jesus turns around and gives the glory to the Father. That's a whole other topic, right? But that's what God wants, he wants you to be like Jesus. Why? Because he loves his son. And he wants you to be like him. And he wants Christ to be lifted up so that you would worship him. The whole world would bow their knee to him. It is this worship that Satan desired for himself. Go back to Ezekiel 28. He wanted the glory. He wanted to ascend to the throne. He wanted, he wanted the worship from the angels and from people. He was the most glorious <clears throat> angel, and he was not satisfied with that. When he could not have that glory, and, and think about this, when you're envious of somebody, they have something that you want. Are you, do you just want what they have? What is your attitude towards that person who has what you want? It's anger, and it's hatred. You despise that person for having what you want. 
That's what envy is, and that is how Satan feels toward Christ. Christ has the glory, the power that he wants, and so he despises Christ for it. And so because of this, he, in his jealousy, raised a rebellion against the Lord. He took a third of the angels with him to be his demons. He then tempted Eve to doubt God's goodness, his truthfulness, And this led her to disobey him and break that relationship. This had the effect that all of mankind thereafter was subject to sin and death. And since that time, his primary focus was to keep mankind enslaved in sin so that they would die in a state of rebellion against God, permanently cursing God. And all people are born in sin. In sin my mother conceived me, David says. In Adam all died because all sin. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God has been on a rescue mission since Genesis 3. He promised in 3.15 that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the snake. This vague promise right from the beginning that the one that started all of this would be crushed by the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. So the one that's going to crush the head of the snake is going to be a man of some kind. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it narrows it down more and more and more until you realize John 1.1, 1, 1, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus is that seed He is that man who is able to crush the head of the snake. That is what is revealed throughout Scripture. That is God's rescue mission. Satan tried to hinder it the entire time throughout the Old Testament. He tried to kill the Jews. He tried to destroy the Jews. He tried to lead them into idolatry so that they would would never fulfill the promises of God. And yet God still ordered all things according to his power. He tried to kill the babies in Bethlehem. And then when Jesus walked the earth, he tempted Jesus to take a shortcut to glory rather than endure the cross. He he was constantly trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Remember when, when Peter stood up to Jesus? And, you know, Jesus said, I'm gonna go and be crucified and Peter says, no way, Lord, you're not going to do that. Remember what Jesus says to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking as man thinks, not as God thinks. Get behind me, Satan. Satan was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross, from fulfilling this rescue mission. But he failed. He failed. He failed to stop Jesus from marching to the cross, from laying his life down for our redemption and thus crushing the head of the snake. So now, Satan, knowing that he has ultimately been defeated and knowing that his time is short, is trying to mitigate his losses by opposing the work of God, primarily by opposing the spread of the gospel, keeping people blinded in their sin. And so he seeks to limit the effectiveness of the church and of individual Christians in spreading that gospel. Okay, so that is his goal. That's his agenda. 
Now, what are his allies in this? Okay? So, his characteristics we talked about, right? His agenda. What is his purpose? What is his goal? Number three, what are his allies? He's got two big ones. The flesh and the world. Look at Ephesians 2, 1. Ephesians 2, 1. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the mind, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, unbelievers are already dead in sin. That means they cannot please God. They stand condemned, and there is no love for God. Okay? Every, every person has this natural inclination against God. They're born with it. The world is characterized by this. And it is, it, not only is their desire against God, now it's also energized by Satan and he is at work in them. And they're characterized by disobedience. That's why they're called the sons of disobedience. So what does this mean? Living according to the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the mind. Okay, when you were conceived, you were automatically born with this nature. You were dead in it. And so your desires are contrary to God's will. And therefore, you don't have to be taught how to covet. You don't have to be taught how to lie or steal or cheat or express anger. My two-year-old knows how to do those things. She's an expert in all of those things. Right? It comes naturally. You don't have to learn how to be selfish or disobedient. You don't, you, know, you don't have to go to school to learn that. You don't have to be brainwashed to do that. It comes naturally. Think about this, guys. Because of that one sin of Adam, it infected all of the human race such that when a child is born, their every thought is only selfish all the time. Is only contrary to God's will. We're born wicked sinners. And we don't even have to do it on purpose. You see, you don't have to be, you don't have to do it on purpose to be wicked. It comes without you intending to do it. You know, and this is the thing with, um, you know, the LGBT thing. Well, it comes naturally. That doesn't mean it's good. Just because you naturally have these feelings, just because you didn't try to do this, just because you didn't seek this out, doesn't mean it's good. Just like every single man on the other side of things has natural selfish lust in his heart for someone who is not, for, for women who are not his wife. That's natural, Right? but it's evil and wicked just because it's just be, and we do it we do it without even purposefully doing it you have to purposefully not sin see that is that is the state that we're born in we're truly dead and we don't even realize how bad it is 
which is why we, which is why we, um, which is why we can't understand why God would condemn someone to hell. You want, you want to know why we, we don't understand that? It's because we think people are basically good or that they're more good than they are bad. And your standard for evaluating that is what you are okay with. So it's amazing when you consider all this, right? You don't have to learn arrogance. You don't have to learn any of these things. It all comes naturally. We, and we get more sophisticated at expressing our sinful desires uh, in more deceptive ways and in nicer ways, more polite ways, ways that, that get other people to, um, to not get in our way, to, to be nice to us, to not think poorly of us. We're sophisticated at getting what we want. Despite all of this, people believe that they are basically good and deserving of heaven, and there's nothing further from the truth. Think about this. People will readily admit that they are not perfect, right? If you ask anybody in this room, are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect. You ask anybody out on the street, are you perfect? Nope, I'm not perfect. Are you a sinner deserving of God's wrath? Oh, heck no. Excuse my language. No way. That is when the claws come out. That is when the teeth come out. When you want to say, okay, you go beyond them just not being perfect to, you are a child of wrath, destined for judgment in hell, and that is what you actually deserve. That is what you have earned with your life. So notice, all these sinful lusts, they're not just physical urges, right? It doesn't, it's not just the, the, the lusts of the flesh, but they're de- the desires of the mind. The mind has been tainted by sin, and in the unbeliever, it is dominated by sin. This doesn't mean that pe- unbelievers are stupid. It just means they do not submit to the will of God. Many are brilliant, but brilliant Rebels. So unbelievers are dead in sin and can do nothing but sin, and they are never in submission to God, no matter how moral their acts are. They never act in loyalty and faithfulness to the one true God that created them, which is the reason that they were created. They are dominated by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the mind. But believers have been set free. You and I have been set free. We're no longer enslaved to these lusts. No longer enslaved to the desires of the mind. You now can do the things that are pleasing to God. That is all over the New Testament. It doesn't mean you always will, but now you have the power to Now you have the freedom to do what is pleasing to God. And the difference now between what happened before salvation and what happens after, the difference now is that now there is a war going on inside of you. Before that, there was no war. There was only captivity. You were enslaved. Now you're free, and now you're fighting. (laughs) 
Now you're fighting the lusts of the flesh. Now you're fighting the lusts of the mind. There is a war going on. Now you're on Satan's radar. Now you're battling your own desires, and you have the enemy outside of you, and you have the enemy inside of you. And there's a conflict in your soul between the Spirit of God and His desires and the flesh and its desires. Romans 8 says that you are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that implies two things. They're not all totally dead yet, but you can put them to death. And you are to make war on these sinful desires because you are no longer enslaved to them. Now you must destroy them. These fleshly lusts are waging war against you. 1 Peter 2.11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Those desires that you're tempted by are waging war against your soul. They are an ally of the devil within you. Look at Ephesians 4.17 while you're in Ephesians Next page, 417. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That is, that is unbelievers. They're callous. They've given themselves to sensuality, every kind of impurity, and they do it greedily. Okay? They can never stop. They want more. Verse 20, but this you did not learn from Christ. You did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your form, former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So we're being called to deny these lusts of the flesh and the desires of the mind, the lusts of deceit. But Satan does not want you to do that. As a believer, he no longer has dominion over you. He no longer works within you. He no longer blinds your minds to the gospel. But he knows that though you are free, you are still tempted by these lusts. He knows this, and he wants to exploit your desires. And he uses his other ally to do this, to bring temptation, to bear on the flesh, and that is the world. That is the world. Back in Ephesians 2.2, he works in the sons of disobedience. And this world system, the combined system of ungodly thoughts and values is the world, unbelievers. And we will talk about that next time. We will fill that out next time. How does he use the world to bring temptation to bear on your flesh? And how do we fight it? How do we prepare for that? And 
just really quickly, I want to say two things in, in case someone is not there. God is infinitely more powerful than Satan and all of his forces combined. And you and I have been set free by the power of Christ, and in him we are more powerful. And all we have been called to do is what he says there is put on the armor of God. If you want to, be, if you want to walk in the strength of the Lord, you put on his armor. It's very simple. It's truth. It's righteousness. It's faith. It's the gospel of peace. It's, the, it's faith. It's the word of God and prayer. All the stuff you already know to do. But, but it's urgent, and you need to do it now because there's coming an evil day in which this devil, this powerful, scheming devil, is wanting to bring temptation to bear on your flesh through the world. And he'll use deception, division, distraction, and persecution, pressure, to, to cause you to cave so that you will not fall back, so that you will not stand firm. Instead, you will shirk what God has called you to do, and thus you will disqualify your witness to the gospel in an unbelieving world, and you will, you will tear down the church rather than build it up. So, if you leave with nothing, as you walk out those doors, the, I, I just want you to leave with the sense that the lens that you, through which you look at the world as you walk out there, the people that you're interacting with, there is a spiritual war going on in the hearts of each person here. How does that change the urgency with which you pursue holiness and righteousness in your own life? How does that change how you pray for one another? When someone is in the hospital, when someone is suffering, when there's marital conflict, what are you praying for them? Because it's not just about them feeling better. It's about them walking faithfully with Christ through the midst of the spiritual war because Satan will use those times to bring temptation to bear on them in those moments. And so don't neglect to care for one another in the midst of this war. All right, let's pray, and I'll see you again in two weeks.